I, I tell you, it, it must have been something absolutely extraordinary to have been able to follow Jesus during those three years between the time that he's revealed as the promised one at his baptism all the way through to the point where he enters into Jerusalem triumphantly on the, on the donkey declaring the prophecies to be true. I mean, can you imagine if you were one of those few people that might have encountered Jesus for the very first time at the baptism experience, at the baptism incident, and at that moment, because of the extraordinary nature of of that particular incident, you kind of made the decision, I want to stay close enough and stay around this guy enough to kind of see where the story goes. Because it, it already feels pretty big, right? And then you sort of traveled with him in and out of his story, being able to observe in moments this unfolding wonder that is Jesus Christ. I mean, if you were at that baptism, uh, that was a big moment. Uh, maybe you're standing over there and John the Baptist, a, a prophetic voice in your cultural context, is in there baptizing. You may, might even be there to be baptized. It was very common during that time for people to come and enter into baptism in, in order to just kind of get themselves right with God because of different things they were doing. So you're waiting there and out of the blue, out of nowhere, this guy walks into the scene. You see John the Baptist uh, suddenly stopping and declaring all of these prophecies about who this is. And you're going, well, that, that sounds like a, the promised one. And he walks into the water. And while he's in the water being baptized, a voice comes from heaven. And the father says, this is my son. And I'm very, very pleased with him. And you're like, whoa. And then a, a dove actually in tangible form descends and you see the spirit of God come onto Christ. What we now understand and know is that moment where Jesus, because he had voluntarily set aside his divine attributes in order to walk among us, had to be empowered by the Spirit of God himself. This was that moment where that happens. And for the people on the ground, the perspective of at least going, something is extraordinary about this man. He comes out of the water and you go, I, I want to hang with this guy, kind of see where this goes. He sort of disappears for a couple of weeks. You, you hear rumors that he went into the wilderness and that he dealt there with some uh, powerful and dark forces and, and that he came out of the wilderness uh, having overcome. And you bump back into him in Nazareth. This is a little hometown and you know, now the word spread over 40 days about Jesus. You're in Nazareth. He shows up there and Jesus is kind of gaining some fame at this point and Nazareth is a hometown for him. He's the homeboy. He's the new rabbi coming into town. Everyone's proud of their, you know, their their homeboy son, and, and they ask him on that particular worship service to read from the scriptures. It was very typical. A, a visiting rabbi would get up and read from the scriptures, and he picks up the scripture reading set for that day, and it is out of the book of Isaiah. It is the prophecy about the promised one who would come and rescue his people and restore all things and set all things right and, and bring the kingdom of God to planet earth. And he reads this prophecy, and when he's done, he goes like this. I got great news in your midst today. This prophecy's been fulfilled. I'm right here. And all the people try to stone him because they think he's blaspheming because he's claiming to be God. They didn't know yet that he was God. That was the miss there. But he says, I'm God. And they go, this is a blasphemer. And they try to stone him and throw him off a cliff. And Jesus disappears supernaturally in that story. You're standing there and you're like, this guy's crazy. He's here. He says it. He disappears. We don't know where he is. The next thing you hear, he's down in Capernaum. So you hustle your way down to Capernaum. And there he's starting to do some crazy crazy cool stuff, and, and you watch him 
as he starts intersecting, colliding with ordinary folk like you and me, ordinary people just trying to make ends meet and trying to uh, carve a life out for themselves, trying to, trying to get enough to pay for whatever college meant uh, for their kids in that context and get a little retirement put together. So these are fishermen, these are tax collectors, these are, these are guys, businessmen, they're just kind of doing their thing and, and Jesus begins to interact with these different businessmen and, and you hear him invite them out of the ordinary story they're living into something much bigger. We hear it this way. Jesus says to the fishermen, look, I, I, you're, you're a great fisherman. Good job. That's awesome. But if you follow me, if you abandon the ordinary life you're trying to carve out and you come follow me, I will make you fishers of men. I will, give, I will make you world changers. I will change everything about you. And so these guys buy in and they set their nets aside and they abandon the ordinary life they're living in and they, and they run after Jesus. And as they follow him, and, and you kind of follow along, the things that emerge from there are crazy. Maybe you were sitting there uh, when he was on that mount, when he declared his first great message. We call it the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes. He speaks that message out with such incredible insight and authority about the things of the kingdom of God that when the message is done, Scripture says the people were astonished at his teaching and they said to themselves, who is this man who teaches with such insight and authority? It is almost as though he is from that place. And you sit there and you start realizing, man, that first moment at the baptism, it's growing, it's building, there's more to it. Over a period of time, you follow Jesus and, and these prophecies that have been revealed in the Old Testament about the one who would come, the rescuer, the redeemer, the promised one, he starts doing things that you realize, uh, ch check, <laughs> check, another prophecy, check, and it's getting exciting. And, and then, then some stuff starts happening. I mean, he's, he's teaching crowds all the time, and the crowds are getting bigger and bigger, and eventually there are thousands of people, and at one point, you're in the crowd, you're listening to some teachings, it's getting late in the day, he's still got a lot to say, you don't want to leave, but you're hungry, and Jesus pulls some baskets out, and he starts passing them around, and every time you take something out of the basket, something's back in the basket, and supernaturally, he feeds thousands of people, not on one occasion, but on two that we know of. And you go, this, this guy has deep sense of what his people need and deep compassion and the power to do something about it. Oh, it's, it's, it's awesome. And then you hear the stories. You, you weren't there, but, but maybe, maybe you were one of the disciples, one of the 12. And, and, and Jesus sends you on a, on, a, on a boat one day across the Sea of Galilee. And, and it's not looking great. The weather's not great, but you trust him. And he knows what he's doing. So he goes, he says, I'm going to hang out. I'm going to hang out with dad for a while. You go, and, and I'll meet you on the other side. And they go, and the storm ends up being worse than they thought. And these fishermen who know the, the waters well, they're so scared, so afraid because they get it. When you're in a storm like this one, you don't get out of it. They are fearing for their lives. And they're thinking to themselves, Jesus sent us out. He shouldn't have. We're dying on this lake today. And out, out of the night, this apparition walks across the water. They're so scared. They're like, it's a ghost. Run for your lives. We're on a boat. We can't go anywhere. And it turns out it's not a ghost, it's Jesus, and he comes to them and, and he says, you guys need to start getting the picture of who I am. You need, to start, you need to start seeing this for what it is. He jumps into their story, gets in the boat, he's talking to them and he goes, quiet down! And the wind's like, sorry, we didn't know you were on the lake, we would never have stormed. Whoop! I mean, the, the storm stops, the waves quiet down. He did that several times in Scripture. 
We, we shut down wind and storms. And, and you're there and you're going, unbelievable. This guy holds power over the very nature that we live in. And then as you travel with him further, man, those three years must have been big. You, you walk with him and everywhere he goes, every town he goes to, if, if there are people there that are sick and struggling, they, they've, they've done all that they can, he touches them and, and it seems as though disease just moves away. Demonic possession, he speaks and, and everything changes. He, he makes blind people see again and people that can't walk, walk again. And you're like, <laughs> that's big. Can you imagine if you were there the very first time Jesus walked up to a dead body, a dead human being, and he said, I, I would like you to get up. And that dead person stood up. And that, I mean, healing is one thing. I mean, it's, it's awesome, but that's one thing. But when Jesus started raising dead people, you go, this is bigger than anything I could ever have imagined. If you were there the first time the first dead person got resurrected, he did it on multiple occasions, so pick your story, you would have been pretty awed at that moment. That's a story worth telling at the water cooler. And then you follow Jesus and you watch the unfolding story of the prophecies come true. That, that's big, but can you imagine if you weren't just an observer, if you weren't just someone watching it unfold like we just described, where you got to see it all, but you were actually one of the recipients of an interaction with Jesus that transformed everything about your trajectory in your life. I mean, let, let's imagine if you were one of the 12 disciples fishing away, car, trying to carve a life out for yourself, and Jesus has a conversation with you about a, a bigger life than you could imagine, and, and you step into it, can you imagine those boys at the end of the three years as they're walking into Jerusalem at the triumphal entry, and all that is possible with Jesus is seeming to come to, to reality? Can you imagine Peter and John walking with Jesus, and Peter says to John, three years ago, could you have imagined this moment? Could you have ever thought to yourself, this would be our story, this would be our life? I mean, we were fishing for crying out loud. Now we're walking into Jerusalem, conquerors with the conquering king. I mean, who knew? It's big. Can you imagine if you were the woman, Samaritan, at a well? You've had five husbands divorced. You're living with a man. You are not only the scourge of the Jewish society because you're a Samaritan woman, but now even in your world, people talk about you. You go to the well when nobody else is at the well because you just don't want to deal with the ridicule that comes your way. And you show up there in a quiet moment where there should be no one. And to your horror, there is a Jewish rabbi sitting by the well. And you're like, oh, maybe I should leave. But you need the water and you're not going to walk back up here again later in the day. So quickly you try to draw a little water out and this guy speaks to you. Very, very unusual. And so you're like, do I respond? Is it a trick? Am I going to get stoned? I don't know. And so you speak back and, and, and in a single conversation, folks, this conversation probably didn't last more than a few minutes, maybe 30. And when the conversation is over with this rabbi... You're standing holding your water and you suddenly realize that your, your sins I, I, you think have just been forgiven, your past has just been wiped off the table, your fears are gone, you've been inspired, stirred up, set free, and you've been sent to go and tell others. And you're not sure how it happened. You're like, I came here in shame, I leave in freedom, I just talked to a guy for 30 minutes. Imagine if you were her. Imagine if you were the woman 
that have been dragged out, uh, caught in the act of adultery, and you're dragged out by the uh, Jewish leadership to be used as a pawn in a game to trick a rabbi so they can arrest him. You're brought into the streets and cast down onto the ground. It, you can tell. I mean, it's full of shame and horror. And you know when you're laying in the ground, best case scenario, you get out of this shamed uh, uh, in a public way. Worst case scenario, you get stoned right here and die. Likely end for you. And you're laying there, and this rabbi's standing there, and this conversation's happening between the leaders and the rabbi, and he starts saying some stuff, and people start leaving, and you don't know what's going on. Next thing you know, he's holding you by the hands, he's talking to you, he's touching you, you're unclean, he's not, how's this happening? And he's speaking with you, and in moments of conversation, probably minutes at best, when he's done with you, you stand up, and you turn around, and your head is spinning, and you think to yourself, everything feels different. I, I, I think I'm free. I think I really do. I mean, he said like forgiveness, sins, gone. Don't live like this. You don't have to. I've got bigger story for you. Go, be free. I feel free. I think I just stared into love itself. Can you imagine if you were her? In a single moment of absolute and utter shame and probable death, you leave that moment and instead you've got life and freedom and Everything you've ever dreamed of. That, that's big. Can you imagine if you were Zacchaeus? I mean, Jericho is the chief city of tax collecting. It is the gateway into uh, the, the land of Israel. If you go in and out of Israel, you get taxed there on the way in, on the way out, and in some other secret way. And Zacchaeus is the tax collector of tax collectors in Jericho of the tax collecting city. He is called in the scriptures the chief tax collector. On the top five hated men in Israel, he's on the list. And Jesus, the famous rabbi, after three years of ministry, is coming through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. Everybody wants to see him, touch him, experience him. Zacchaeus wants to see it too. He's a short guy. He climbs in his suit and tie up into a tree. How embarrassing is that? Because he knows he can't be in the crowd because they don't like him. But he just wants to see Jesus. Little did he know that within a few minutes he would be in his home with Jesus. And in a matter of probably hours, maybe not even that long, he has a conversation with Jesus in his house house with a cup of tea, you know the song, and after that's all done, he's giving his money back to all those he stole from, he's changed his entire trajectory of his life and future, he sees everything differently, his past is wiped off, his future is made new, and everything seems bright and wonderful to him. He was with Jesus for moments. Can you imagine if you were Zacchaeus? I mean, these are, these are big things. So, so imagine now that you have observed all of these things, you've watched the prophecies unfold, you've experienced some of those moments, perhaps as the disciples where he touched human beings in a momentary interaction and changed everything about them. And now you are on the verge of entering the city of Jerusalem and Jesus gets up on a donkey uh, declaring that the prophecy about Zechariah is all true and that this is that moment. The Passover is approaching and you're getting excited because you know what all this means. This actually means that Jesus, when he declared himself to be the Messiah and the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, it was real and you're about to enter into the moment in which all that has been lost to your people is about to be restored. Do not underestimate for one moment the surge of hope and excitement and wonder and freedom that was in the people when Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. 
I mean, at that moment, it was the height of the surge of hope and light and power. You were already free. You didn't even need him to ultimately do the freedom thing. It was already so inevitable, you were just kind of waiting for it to unfold. And as though that wasn't enough, that week must have been epic. I mean, Jesus, Monday, uh, he's out in the temple, walks into the temple, and he walks in, he's turning tables over in the temple of all these guys that have been using the temple to kind of do all their gambling and craziness and selling stuff, and he turns tables over with massive authority and strength, and he's chasing them out of the temple. They're running. They're just like running, and he's like, get out, get out. This is my house. It's a house of prayer. We're done with this story. And all these people you feared, you, you, you didn't know what to do about it. He just speaks and they move. And you're like, oh, it's coming. Rome, better watch out, it's coming. On Tuesday, he offends the Pharisees, he offends the Sadducees, he offends the Herodians. Every power player in Jerusalem is offended by Jesus. And guess what? They can't do anything about it. They kind of stand back. Every time they try to rebuttal him, they walk away with their tails between their legs. And you're like, Yes! I mean, our king is king indeed. Everybody step back. On Wednesday and Thursday, I mean, you're just bouncing around Jerusalem. It's like Jesus has cloned himself. I mean, he's everywhere. Every corner you turn, he's teaching. He's saying things. He's in the temple. He's declaring wondrous and amazing realities. You feel it all throughout the week. Hope is surging and surging and surging. And Thursday night is the Passover. And you know what that means, right? I mean, the Passover, you've been celebrating that for generations, remembering the rescue that God effected for your people when they're trapped by the Egyptians through Moses. And you know that the prophecies about the promised one ties back to Moses and that rescue. So you're doing the math in your head and going, every Passover we have ever celebrated, every meal we have ever honored God for his rescue have all been for this Passover. They've all been for this moment. They've all brought us here. I'm part of the generation that's going to see the ultimate restoration of all things through Jesus. How awesome is that? This is the Passover of all Passovers. And you're about to eat that meal Thursday night. So you enjoy the meal Thursday night. You're talking about all this stuff. You're like, tomorrow is Passover. What is Jesus going to do? You know somewhere in an upper room, he's with his key players, the inner circle, the disciples, and he's sharing with them the last pieces of the puzzle before Friday unfolds and all things will be made right. So you go to bed Thursday night and you're pretty happy. I mean, you are pretty excited. You fall asleep and sleep like a baby. You're already free and everything's already done. Friday morning, you wake up, you come out of the house, getting a few things done. You walk out and the neighbor is sprinting your way, looks red in the face and you're thinking, I can't wait. You see, it's already begun. Oh man. And as he runs up, you're like, okay, what? What did he do? And the neighbor, the face looks a little weird and you're like, what? And he's like, did you hear? Like, what do you, what do you mean? He goes, did you hear about last night? No, I didn't hear anything. I was sleeping. Dude, they arrested him. Arrested who? Jesus. They arrested Jesus. It was, it was early, early this morning in the watches of the night. And they came. They were in a garden. He was praying. I think it was one of his own. I think Judas, who came in and, and they betrayed him. He brought Roman soldiers with them. Well, what did Jesus do? He did nothing. He, they took him. I don't know if he could. Well, could he have done something? I don't know. He did nothing. I wasn't there. I just heard. Well, where is he now? I, I don't, they took him to Caiaphas last night. There was a trial. There was a crowd. People were mad. What did they do? They, they went to Pontius Pilate. 
Well, Pontius Pilate doesn't make rash decisions. He's, he's proven himself to be relatively wise. Yeah, but they had the crowd. I think they paid them. We're not sure, but they were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. You're thinking in your head, why wasn't I there? Why didn't you wake me up? I would have come. I would have shouted, don't do it. But we were sleeping. We were in our beds. This was at night. We didn't know. They got the right crowd in the right place to shout the right thing. And Jesus was in trouble. Well, the, the crowd shouted, where is he now? I think he went through the scourging, man. I think they did the, the cat with the nine tails deal. I think he's pretty badly beaten. Where'd they take him? Is he in a prison somewhere? We've got to do something about this. I think he's, I think it's too late. I think he's on the hill. See, the hill, you don't want to hear that because that hill, that's the place where in Jerusalem, the Romans take those who they crucify. Your heart is racing, your mind is flashing through things. You, you can't believe what you're hearing, it can't be true, so you run as fast as you can. You run through the streets of Jerusalem to get to the hill. You have to see it for yourself, and as you come around the corner, there they are, the three crosses, already up, already erected, standing there. You run as close as you can, and you see the two guys on the end, you can recognize them, they're not Jesus. The guy in the middle, his body's so torn into shreds, you can't, there's something on his head, there's blood everywhere, you're looking, and then, and then it happens. You know that moment? where all the truth that you dread, everything you hope will never become true, you see it for the first moment. You see it, it's Jesus. Oh, it's definitely Jesus. He doesn't look good. Everything in you, all the hope you have held for, for months, maybe years if you followed him long enough, starts draining out of your body. You feel pale and weak. You're standing, holding, catching your breath, and then it dawns on you, well, he is Jesus, right? I mean, he is Jesus. He has, he has done things. Maybe he'll come off the cross. So you linger for a while. You hear some of the statements. If you're God, get off the cross. And you're like, oh, duck, stand back. Doesn't come off the cross. And then you start hearing Jesus say things like, Father, Father, I am forsaken. And it sounds like a cry of desperation, but it, you know, you, you're kind of like, I don't, I don't know. And then it is finished, he says, and you're like, what does that mean? And then he dies on the cross. They stick a spear into his heart. There's no doubt he's dead. When they pull the body off the cross, I mean, it's, it's limp. You know it. It's, he's dead. See, Jesus could do a lot of things while he was alive, but dead people don't do anything. The darkness was too strong. It was too big. Rome was too powerful. This is the best chance we've ever had for a Messiah, and not even he could stand up against the powers that be. As they take the body off, you go home that day. This is the first day. You go to bed that night and you can't really sleep, you know. You're just, you're hoping that when you fall asleep, you'll wake up the next morning and it was all a bad dream. It's all of it. And you wake up and like, oh, I had this horrible nightmare. But something in you tells you you're not gonna wake up into a better world tomorrow. On the second day, as the city is dead quiet, everybody is just kind of shocked Everyone that was following Jesus doesn't know what to do. The Passover turned out not to be anything that it was promising to be. There's a couple of guys in an upper room somewhere. They're hiding. Rome had this tradition that if, if they could find you to be a follower of the person they just crucified, they just crucify you too to make sure others would know you don't follow people like this. And so the guys are hiding because they know Rome is coming for them and they're afraid. Some of the women are with them. They are in absolute shock. John just watched Jesus die on a cross. His mother was sitting right there. The others were at a distance and everything is all wrong in the world. 
On the, on the second day, this is where shock and awe still has you trapped. But by the end of that day, the shock and awe leaves just enough room to give you the chance to start thinking through tomorrow a little bit. You don't want to. You actually just want to go back. But, but man, it's just, it's just darkness all in you now. So the guys are talking, I'm sure. What do we do now? How long do we hide out here? How long do we wait? Where do we go from here? See, they were with Jesus, associated with Jesus the whole time. So when they go back to Galilee, what do they do? They go back to fishing? Well, if they're going to go fish, their business is, is it's over anyways because they're one of the jokers that were with Jesus. The guy that thought he was going to take over the world and died on a cross. See, their reputation is shot. Uh, their future is gone. Their hope is lost. The old life of fishing is calling them back. But even that life isn't good enough anymore because it's tainted by this one now. Everything that was good has just turned sour at the death of Jesus on the cross. You start thinking about what it's going to be like when word starts traveling. Because few know right now, only those in Jerusalem. But what when word gets back to Zacchaeus in Jericho? Zacchaeus, he died on a cross, man. You shouldn't have given all that money back. That was the wrong move. You shouldn't have believed him. He was just a good talker. What when word gets back to the woman that was caught in adultery? Her, remember, her sins were forgiven. Remember that? She was set free that day, but it turns out she's not free because he's not who he said he was. He was just another guy with a, with a sharp tongue. And she felt free for a while, but it's all gone now. She's not free. Her sins are not forgiven She's as damned as she was before. So why not just go back to the old life, right? What about the woman at the well? She was ridiculed for having five husbands and living with a guy. Now she's going to be ridiculed for running around Samaria telling them that she'd met the Messiah. Oh, that's the girl that met the Messiah. <laughs> Jesus, the guy that died on the cross. She thought he was like the bomb. And she's going to live with that the rest of her life. Look, guys, when bad news travels, it carries darkness with it. It carries a, a, a power to suck hope out of us and to drain courage from us and to change everything. At the end of that second day, everyone goes to bed and they know the next morning, because of Rome locking down the deal, they got to start thinking practically. You know that moment where you've lost someone you love and you've been in shock for about 24 hours and now it gets real and you're like, well... We gotta, we gotta start, we gotta do stuff now. We gotta go to the funeral home. We gotta take care of business. And so the, that morning, a bunch of the women get up and they head over to the grave to start taking care of what needs to be taken care of. We're gonna enter back into the story at that moment. So stay here with me in the shock and awe of Saturday, the second day. And let's enter into the morning of the third day together as we jump into the scriptures and let's follow the story as it goes from here. Uh, we're going to jump into Luke chapter 24. If you have one of your Bibles with you, Luke chapter 24, if you'd like to use one of ours, feel free. They're all over under the seats. Grab one of those. Turn to page 575. Page 575. Uh, that'll take you to Luke chapter 24 and we're going to start in verse 1. Luke chapter 24 verse 1. Here's what it says. It starts with this sentence. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. So a couple people are heading to the tomb and they've got spices with them. This gives us the mindset that they are in, okay? They are not going to the tomb expecting a resurrection. This has not dawned on them as a possibility. How could it? It is so ridiculously impossible that it's not part of the thinking that a human being goes through. So they're heading to the tomb with the spices they use to prepare a body so that it will decay appropriately and properly. 
They were supposed to do that the day before, but frankly, between all the shock and awe and between Rome insisting that they lock down the body in the tomb because they didn't want anybody to steal the body and pretend Jesus came back from the dead because there were rumors that that might happen, but everyone knew. Rabbis like to talk in theories. They do. Rabbis like to teach in hypotheticals. When Jesus was saying stuff like that, I'm going to rebuild the temple in three days, that's what rabbis do. So it's not actually going to come back from the dead. So they're heading to the tomb, and you can imagine that walk to the tomb, right? That is not a happy walk. They're not talking much, maybe here and there. Are you okay? I'm all right. They're stealing themselves up. Do you know why? You understand what they're going to walk into, right? They're going to walk into a grave with their beloved son, their beloved leader, their beloved Jesus. His, his body is torn to shreds, and they've got to fix it. I mean, there's nothing that you could imagine harder than that, could you? And they're stealing themselves up. We gotta get this done. We gotta get this done. Someone's gotta do it. They get to the gravesite. They were told when they get there in the morning that uh, they'd have to wait for the soldiers to confirm some things, uh, break the seal that the Romans had put on, they removed the stone away, and then they could go in. So they got there early so that they would be ready whenever they allowed them in. But when the woman got there, they found something interesting. Look at this, verse two. They took the spices that they'd prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So they get to the tomb, the stones rolled away, and they make any, the, the same assumption you and I would make. Well, the Romans got their job done early. This is awesome. We can get in there. We can get this done. We can go home because this is my worst nightmare. The stone is rolled away. So they don't rush into the tomb. They walk into the tomb. But to their horror, when they get into the tomb, the body is gone. And this is what it says about their discovery. While, verse 4, while they were perplexed about this. So they are absolutely in shock right now. The word perplexed is the collision between the word confused and the word horrified, okay? When you're confused, you're trying to figure something out. When you're perplexed, you want to be confused, but you're kind of not, and you're dead scared. Because you know what this could mean, you don't know that that's what it means, so you are a little confused, but you're very scared because there's a possibility that's horrifying. What is that possibility? You have to understand the nature of Rome during this time. Rome had a way of coming up in their heads with ways to create such suffering and devastation in anyone that rose up against them so that nobody else would dare. Rome came up with the, 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 the whip that had the nine pieces of leather with the bone and nails and glass in it that when they were beating you, that would tear flesh from bone so that you would suffer. Rome came up with a crucifixion, nailing a human being to a cross through their wrists and feet and then putting them in such a position that in order to breathe, they'd have to pull themselves up uh, by these wounds and then go down again and pull themselves up just to breathe. So you're suffering, bleeding, and suffocating at the same time and it takes a couple of hours so that anyone who ever thinks to stand up against Rome would remember that visual and go, I don't think it's worth it. They were famous for taking dead bodies and sticking them up on poles and doing terrible things to them so that people would walk through the streets and anyone that was a, a leader would be set an example of, made an example of, so that no one else would dare do what they do. So you know, when you're one of those women, you were coming to prepare the beloved body of your leader and Rome took him. You have no idea what they're going to do with him. It's not going to be pretty, you know that. You're going to walk around a corner somewhere and there he's going to be. And you know this is going to go badly. I mean, perplexed is the least of your feelings, isn't it? So they're standing there. They have their spices. The world is crumbling before them. 
the worst thing they thought possible, preparing the body of Christ, is now actually made even worse because it's not there to prepare and they are shocked. This is our humanity, folks. We stand in moments and we calculate them by what we know is possible and that's what they were doing. And so then this occurs. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. That's what, that's what Luke writes. Now, you may at first go, dazzling apparel. That sounds pretty cool. Maybe they were very well-dressed, and they had little, little bits of glitter in their suits so that you kind of thought it was kind of dazzling. And so you're like, wow. So Luke's saying, two very well-dressed men walked into the cave. But you see, he doesn't say that. He says, two very well-dressed men were there. They just were there. And you're like, oh, they're, they're here. But then we find out that it wasn't just well-dressed because the next sentence tells us what dazzling apparel actually meant. Take a look, okay? And as they were frightened, that's the woman, and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them. So the, so the woman turned around and these two glowing guys are in the cave with them. They are dazzling in their apparel. They are glowing. They are not like us. This is a clear supernatural moment because we have to drag humanity out of the natural into the supernatural to kind of go, can we just talk beyond where you're stuck for a second? So God goes, guys, don't walk in looking like humans. Show up looking like angels. Oh, we like that. We're on it. Bam, dazzling, fall to the ground. Ah! And the angel says to the woman, now the tone of the the, the conversation that's about to unfold, I, I love it. Because it's almost like the angels are like, we're a little surprised we gotta tell you this stuff. I mean, honestly, we're a little confused why you're here. So they're kind of speaking in this tone like, I don't get it. Why are you in this cave? Why did you come here? Why do you have spices with you? What did you think you were gonna find? I mean, why are you perplexed about Jesus not being here? They're like, listen, weren't you listening? Weren't you paying attention to the whole story? You've been with him for a bunch of years. I mean, he's been telling you from day one in Galilee. Here's how it's going to play. I'm going to come to planet Earth. I'm here to rescue you. I'm not apologizing to tell you that I'm God, I'm the Savior, I'm the promised one. Then at a certain point, I'm going to give myself over to sinful men. They're going to take me down. They're going to hang me on a cross and I'm going to get crucified. And then three days later, I'm going to come back from the dead on the third day, that morning. I'm going to rise from the dead and all things that I have planned will be made right. Don't you remember? He told you that from day one. So just, just kind of hang with us here for a second. Why are you here? And why are you shocked? He's not here. They didn't take him. Actually, the soldiers ran. It was fun to watch. When he walked out, they ran. I think they're back at the high priest going nuts right now. He's walking around. See, look, I'll read it to you. Uh, this is what they say. And they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you? See, there it is. Remember what he said? While he was still in Galilee. He's like, from the beginning. This isn't fresh news. This didn't happen in Jerusalem a week ago. He's been telling you this from day one. Take a look. That the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day. Rise from the dead. And then this verse happens. Now this is the verse you gotta, you gotta remember. If you forget everything else, remember this moment. Because this is the most powerful verse in this entire passage. Listen to these words. 
verse 8. And they remembered his words. There it is. You see it? Do you feel it? Do you feel it? That moment is the paradigm shift. It is the change. It is everything that they could ever have imagined to be wondrous. It was that moment. And they remembered. They went back in their heads. Yes, he did. You mean he meant it? You mean he actually, well, you are glowing. I'm guessing you mean it. I mean, when he said, this is how it's going to play, it's exactly how it played. And, and you start thinking through the sequence of things, and you're like, yes, it makes sense, it makes sense. So you're staring at an empty tomb, and, and you, were, you were perplexed, and you were broken, and you were grieving, and suddenly you feel it. The grief is draining out of you. Do you feel it? It's like, you don't know what this is like. You've never experienced anything like this, because you should be devastated. You think you still are, but you're not. And it starts draining from you and filling you like a, like a wondrous fountain is, is light and hope like you've never felt before. I mean, if he's back from the dead, do you have any idea what that means? So you remember and you go, yes, yes, I do remember. That is what he said. Do you mean he's gone? He's, he's risen? He's alive? He's alive. He's alive. He's alive. And as the hope surges in you at a, at a level that it's never surged before, forget the triumphal entry. That's a joke now. That kind of hope is paling in comparison to this moment. And what do you do when you feel that kind of hope? When you feel that kind of light and that kind of wonder. You don't hang out talking to glowing guys. You don't even know them. You don't care. You take off. Why? Because back at the little house where you guys were all hiding out, there's a bunch of people still grieving. Have you ever had that moment where somebody has bad news and you have good news that's going to kill their bad news and you want to get it to them as quickly as possible because you don't want them to live one more second in the grief in which they are. And so they run to the house. And when you get there, there's a bunch of women. It says it. Take a look. It, it tells us who was there. A couple of them. Listen. It says, uh, now it was, uh, right before that, it says, and they remembered the, his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. So a bunch of ladies come running into the house at the same time. They're out of breath. They're totally blown away. They're super excited. They're filled with hope. What do you think they're going to do? I mean, are you gonna, do you think they're going to wait for each other to talk? I don't think so. No, because I wouldn't. I mean, that's when you run in the house and say, and then we went, and it was like, oh, and he was gone, and we're like, the room, and then this glowing guy. And no, no, it wasn't like that. It was like, no, I just stopped. And then he came, and, and you can imagine the, the guy's like, everybody quiet for a second. What are you talking about? You seem excited. This is not exciting. No, no, it is exciting. You see, guys, listen. Think about it for a second. Jesus told us since Galilee, this is how it was going to play. See, that's why even though he was being taken, it kind of seemed like he was in control, but we couldn't figure it out. Now it all makes sense. This was never uh, the reality of a victim. This was always the reality of a sovereign rescuer on mission for us. Don't you see it? Well, the guys, I mean, the guys are like, what are you talking about? Can you imagine how afraid they must have been to hope for anything again? Do you know when hope has been sucked out of you at a massive level? You had everything about your future set. Then it was taken from you. Nobody walks in and goes, it's okay, hope is back, until you can confirm it, nobody. So it says it. It's, it says exactly what I think I would have felt if the woman came running telling me. But these words, verse 11, seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. I mean, would you? They, they, maybe they walked into the wrong grave. 
Maybe they saw the wrong deal. Maybe, maybe, I don't know, but no, no. I am not buying this. I have hoped against hope beyond ever anything I ever hoped before. And on, on that first day, it was taken from me. I'm not hoping again. Don't do this to me. There's one guy sitting in this room, probably off to the side. He's usually the most vocal. I would have expected him to start screaming and shouting all sorts of stuff here. But he's sitting quietly because that, that boldness and, and courage that you always see in him, it was robbed from him two days ago. See, Peter, the last interaction he had with Jesus uh, was in a moment in a courtyard where he was kind of being there to be bold, but he ended up denying Christ three times, just as Jesus said he would. And at the end of that, for a personality like Peter, who was kind of that, I'm with you, I'll die for you, they couldn't imagine anything more devastating. And after Peter left Jesus in that moment and and went and hid in a corner somewhere, you know how you process stuff and then you realize what you've done and you want to go back and make it right? Except that Peter never had the chance. The next time Peter finds out about Jesus, Jesus is on a cross dead. See, Peter wrecked everything as far as he was concerned. And restoration was not an option. Redemption was not an option. Making things right was not an option. You know that moment where you you wish you'd said, but you never did, and now it's too late? And Peter has to live with that the rest of his life. So he's sitting quietly, and the women are talking, and I can just see it. Can you see it? Peter's listening, catching little moments that the woman is speaking. And then when they say, when they say this, the angels told us, he asked, don't you remember? And Peter remembers. And he starts sequencing through in his mind all the things Jesus had, had done. And he starts going, I, 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 I don't know. He doesn't say a word. It, it says nothing about Peter saying anything. This is all it says. Verse 12, but Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloth by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. And Peter, Peter stands in that tomb that just a day ago we stood in grieving the loss of all hope. And he's staring at an empty space with a bunch of linens, and suddenly it grows in him. Everything that was impossible doesn't become possible, folks. It becomes real. Do you understand the difference? It's not that the impossible becomes possible. It's that the impossible becomes real. Now, now everything is expanded. If this is true, if Jesus came back from the dead, then every bit of hope we had four days ago is a million times bigger now. It's expanded beyond anything we could ever have imagined. This is huge. And Peter's standing there and he's getting it and he's going, this is unbelievable. And so you're thinking, now the news changes. When this news travels out, just yesterday we were grappling with when Zacchaeus finds out, it's devastating. When the woman at the well finds out, devastating. When, but now everything's different. Do you see how this, how this changed everything? Suddenly Peter, who was lost because he could never restore things with Jesus. If Jesus is alive, there's a conversation that's going to happen. All things will be made right. It actually does happen on a beach just a few days later. It's incredible. Peter Peter goes, freedom is potentially mine again. Everything that Jesus had said he would make us, all of it's again real, again real. When word gets to Zacchaeus, can you imagine? You made the right move, buddy. He's not only what we thought he was, he's bigger than that. I mean, this is like the king of kings, the creator of creators. He came back from the dead. Raising the dead's a joke. He came back from the dead. 
When you look at those two, this is the power. It's the promise. It says everything, everything is safe now again. Everything Jesus ever said is true. Can you imagine when the woman at the well finds out about this? I mean, this changes everything. She's been running around telling everyone, I think I met the Messiah. Now she's going to be the most famous person in all of Samaria. She talked to him at the well. Yeah, the guy that rose from the dead, she had a conversation with him. She was the one that told us about him. It's so awesome. The woman who had her sins forgiven, when she hears about this, can you imagine? I mean, she's hoping it's true. She has, because she's felt so free. But now she finds out, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Your sins are wiped out. When he said that to you, he was God saying that to you. When the reality of the resurrection is realized, as the woman did and as Peter did, a hope surges beyond anything we could have imagined. It spills out. See, this is what God intended from the beginning. He came in as light into the darkness of our world because we'd frankly messed it all up. We were created to make God known and to know God fully, but we decided to eat of the fruit so that we would be like God and know what he knows and pursue our own story and our own divinity and make our own life and glorify our own stories. And God had told us, if you do that, it's not gonna go well for you. That is sin and sin is death and you are going to feel things and know things and experience things that are horrid. And then at the end of it, you will pay the price for your own actions instead of me writing your story. And that's gonna be judgment and that's not gonna go well for you. So you gotta live, you gotta live in my story. That's where you're safe. But we said, nah. And as this world became dark and devastating by the need we had to try to protect ourselves and in the process wreck everything. This moment, this moment is the moment where all hope is brought back to that. And Jesus says, I I came. I came to make it all right to set it all right, to rescue souls and to change stories. And as this unfolds, now the news starts traveling. Oh, and does it travel? I mean, Jesus shows up on multiple occasions for 40 days, revealing himself to all sorts of people. They see him rise into heaven, ascending, and in his ascension, he says to them, listen, remember that big story I invited you into? It's bigger than you thought. I'm gonna make you witnesses throughout the world in every generation, in every context, so that this incredible reality of redemption carries into the darkness of humanity and changes everything, because you see, this was my plan. The light came into the darkness. The darkness came to consume the light. And in the death of Jesus, we thought that the darkness swallowed up the light. And we thought the darkness had won, but this is what the light did. It allowed the darkness to cover it. And just when we thought everything's dark again, the light went, whoa, hold that thought. And from deep within the darkness, it came. But it didn't come draining out slowly. It exploded out of the darkness and it wrecked every injustice. It wrecked every mistake. It wrecked every pain. It wrecked every horrible, unredeemed, terrible moment on planet Earth. It wrecked it and it came for it and it said, I'm coming, I'm coming. Freedom is coming. And we've watched that gospel, that great news, that fantastic news travel since then. It traveled geographically from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria, uh, breaking the cultural bounds that we thought were impossible, but the impossible is real now. It moved from the Samaritans to the Gentiles, uh, a wall so thick and so high, no one would break through it. The gospel broke through it, and the Gentiles came to know redemption. 
And then, just a few years later, Rome realized what was going on and they brought everything they had at the gospel. The greatest persecution of the people that followed Jesus that we have ever known since the day Jesus came back from the dead happened during Nero's time in, in Rome and it was horrid. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Christ followers were thrown into stadiums all around, torn apart by wild animals and gladiators. And all they were told was this, if you deny him, we will set you free. And you know what they did? They went like this. Deny him? Are you out of your mind? Do you have any idea who he is? Dude, we transcend death now. We have no judgment in our future because we're free and we live bigger lives than we used to. We abandon ordinary things for these moments. And they lived lives beyond human imagination, entering into eternity free of judgment. And that gospel spilled over for generations and it continues to move today right here. See, its, its invitation has never changed. That moment in the grave where the woman remembered that's still its invitation. Don't you see who this Jesus is? Don't you see it? Don't you get it? We wrecked it, man. And he came for us despite the fact that he should have abandoned us. Our God came for us. He lived for us. He died for us. He rose from the dead for us to promise us emphatically a resurrection, life. A, a, a restoration and a rescue that would forever set things right. He told us that resurrection promises resurrection. It promises new life. And he told us in big ways, the whole human story, he's rewriting it to redeem it from its darkness. It's beautiful. Everything ordinary can become extraordinary. And that invitation he gave those boys, you want to spend your life fishing? That's fine. That's fine. Build, build a little, little nest egg, get your kids through college, get a little retirement, play some golf. It's okay. But really, is that, is that what you want? Those aren't bad things, but they're ordinary things. They're small things. They're little kingdoms. I will give you a life that will invite you into fullness beyond your wildest imagination. You will live big and bold. You will lose some of those things for the sake of the good news. But losing them are nothing when you realize the life that I'm calling you into. Once I have rescued your soul, you are free. Free from eternity and the judgment that waits there and free from the ordinary day-to-day -day rat race that you try to make it through here. You are made purposeful here and made free there. What life do you want? See, that's still the invitation of the good news, still the invitation of the gospel, still the invitation of the resurrection. Because when the resurrection happened, that changed everything. And it still changes our human story, and folks, it still changes our individual stories. It is still the gospel that collided with me one day and came to me and said, what life do you want to live? The one where judgment waits based on your actions, and that's not going to go well for you. And the life you live now is a rat race? or the one where judgment waits because of Christ's actions and it's gonna go really well for you. And you're given a brand new story here, a bigger story than you could have ever written for yourself. I will make you a fisher of men, a world changer. That's something worth waking up in the morning for. And that 
is the good news. No, 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 the, the great news, the fantastic news, that when we thought all hope was lost, it was just getting started. And when we felt the darkness consume us, the light was just preparing to destroy it. Because when we came awake in the tomb with Peter and stumbled out of that place, the excitement we felt at the triumphal entry paled in comparison to this. So may you and I stumble out of here today captivated by the same thing Peter was, marveling at the fact that our Savior came, declared Himself God, proved Himself God, died to pay for our judgment, rose to give us life, and promises us new things, new things. Everything you've experienced, every injustice, every pain, every struggle, every injustice, pain, and struggle you've affected on somebody else, He promises this, the resurrection will make it all new. It will bring it all back to life because I make dead things alive. I pray you are wrecked and stirred by the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that you will leave here never daring to live an ordinary life again because of what he's done. This is Easter. Let's pray. God, I, I gotta tell you, I'm standing in this moment and I, I kind of feel like Peter stumbling out of that tomb and just, just kind of totally marveling at the reality and the implications of resurrection. I mean, God, I begin to imagine all that will now be made right again. I, I look at my life and think of how, how ordinary it would have been if I had never collided with this fantastic reality. I think about how ordinary I may have lived, building a little kingdom for myself, trying to get kids through college and a retirement sorted out so I can at least not have to work after I'm 70. And then die hoping for the best, but frankly, recognizing that it's probably not gonna go well. And now I stand here and everything's changed because, because you revealed yourself to me. Just as those women did in that grave, God, when the, when the angel said to them, don't you see who this is? Don't you see how desperately you need him and how extraordinarily he is everything that you will ever need? And God, I pray that I will remember every day as they did that day. And I pray that those here who have yet to even see this reality would see who you are, perhaps for the first time today. And start exploring what it means that we made a mess of things and that you've come to restore them, to resurrect them, to rescue us from ourselves. I pray no one in this room would leave here going back to the ordinary life. Those who know you, Jesus, may we walk out of here and go, God, if I lose everything ordinary for the story you want for me, I'm, I'm game, I'm ready. Because you said it, Jesus, if we lose our lives for your sake, we will actually find fuller life than we've ever imagined. God, in view of your mercy, may we lay ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you. Not conforming any longer to the pattern of this world, but being transformed by what we now know. To know your will and to live it. 
And God, for those here that have yet to discover the wonder of relationship with you, God, would you speak deeply to them this morning? Would you whisper to their hearts and say, man, don't you see who I am? I came for you. I lived for you. I died for you. And I rose from the dead to promise you new life, to make all things new for you. Would you compel them into the journey? And would you show them what wonder awaits them? God, may we all be forever changed because you came back from the dead. May we never forget. and May we live our lives differently because of it. We love you, Jesus. Spirit of God, we adore you, Father. We worship you. You are awesome. We pray in Jesus' name.